The True Worship, by J. S. Blackburn. Chapter 5, Spiritual Sacrifices. A spiritual house, and holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices. Over against the material sacrifices of the Mosaic ritual, Peter's epistle presents the spiritual sacrifices of the true worship. The material sacrifices were types or shadows, accurate outlines without substance, of the spiritual sacrifices. What, then, are these spiritual sacrifices? In them must be the very substance of what the true worshippers bring to God. Four antitypes of the Levitical sacrifices are described in the New Testament. One of these stands above the others as the great sacrifice, towering o'er the wrecks of time, when Christ by the Eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God. This sacrifice stands forever apart and unique, it will be the subject of the Song of the Redeemed in Heaven, when there is glory to God in the Church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end, Amen. This sacrifice of Calvary is his work alone, and no other can share in it. Next might be placed the passage in Romans chapter 12 verse 1, I beseech you, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. The tense implies, not a continuous or often repeated sacrifice, but a once-for-all decision. Motivated by the mercies of God, previously explained. The meaning here is not stated to be the work of a priestly family, offering in worship. But uses the concept of sacrifice to portray the irrevocable way in which it is the believer's privilege to yield his body for God's use. This sacrifice will accompany sincere worship, but it could hardly be the spiritual worship itself. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 16 presents an important subsidiary application of the idea of sacrifice, in doing good and giving for the needs of others. For the present purpose, the habitual employment of the spiritual house, the Christian priesthood, is the subject of 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 5. What do the Levitical passages themselves, illuminated by other parts of scripture, yield as we meditate upon them? We proceed to a conclusion by four steps. 1. Those sacrifices which could be brought as a willing response to God, in contrast to those commanded for sins and trespasses, bear several marks of a distinctive character. Associated with them were indications that they were offered to bring something pleasurable to God. The first of these indications is the repeated statement that they were, for a sweet savour, to Jehovah. We are not to suppose that burning animals were intrinsically pleasing to God, but in the scheme of redemption they were a sweet savour to God because of the typical significance. Certain accompaniments of the sacrifices also suggest a fragrance and sweetness rising to him. On the meal offering was put frankincense, and when the moment of offering arrived, though only a handful of the meal was burned as an offering, the burning must include all the frankincense thereof. Moreover, certain actions connected with the sacrifices vividly portray a presentation before Jehovah to give him pleasure. Parts of the peace offerings were waved, and heaved before him, as though he wished to linger, with his people at peace with himself, prolonging his delight in the offering. Thus the Levitical commandments bear the character of being designed to represent what was pleasurable to the Lord. 2. Is there the faintest doubt in Scripture where the Father's pleasure is centered? In eternity and across the whole arch of time, the Scripture speaks with one voice that the Father's full delight is centered in his Son. Hear the voice of the Son, speaking as that wisdom whom the Lord possessed in the beginning of his way, before his works of old, when he appointed the foundations of the earth, then I was by him, and I was daily his delight, Proverbs chapter 8 verse 30. Of him who was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities, the Lord calls, Behold my servant, mine elect, in whom my soul delights, Isaiah chapter 42 verse 1. At his baptism, and also at his transfiguration, lo, a voice from heaven, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, Matthew chapter 3 verse 17 and Matthew chapter 17 verse 5. His giving himself, an offering and a sacrifice to God, was, a sweet-smelling savour, Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1. 
3. After his delight in a person, nothing gives the lover so much pleasure as hearing the beloved praised. It is balm to a parent's ear to hear a child spoken well of. This is probably the meaning of Hebrews chapter 13 verse 15, by him, Jesus, therefore let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually, that is, the fruit of our lips. Praising his name, the sacrifice of praise to God derives its fragrance to him from the sweet savor of the name of Jesus. It is thus pleasurable to the Father for his people to commune with him, sharing his delight in his well-beloved Son. 4. If the spiritual sacrifices consist in the priests of the spiritual house communing with the Father in the sense of telling over and sharing with him his delight in Christ, the Levitical sacrifices themselves concentrate attention upon his death. The central substance of Christian worship is thus speaking to the Father in the power of the Spirit about the fragrance of that obedient sacrifice, when the Son offered himself a sacrifice of a sweet-smelling savour. All the intricate detail of the Levitical system, apparently so dull in itself, springs to life when we see it as speaking of the delight with which God takes minute account of the work of Christ. The various offerings present the special points of view from which that unique sacrifice is viewed in God's sight. Having reached by these steps an understanding of the meaning of the spiritual sacrifices, it is indeed worthwhile to dwell a little on these special points of view. Each of the sweet savor offerings described in Leviticus chapter 1 to 7 with such rich variety of detail, possesses one distinctive feature which provides a starting point by determining its special meaning. These distinctive features are, in the burnt offering, that it was holy for God because all burned on the altar, in the meal offering, that there was no blood, no life given, and in the peace offering, that the priest and the offerer shared the food provided. The burnt offering came first in God's order. In it the death of Christ, although an atonement for sin, is seen as devoted to glorifying God. In the world where God was dishonored by man's disobedience, God has been honored and glorified by the obedience of Christ Jesus. Christ was found in death through obedience to God, in contrast with Adam, who was found in death through disobedience to God. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross, Philippians chapter 2 verse 8. The smoke of every burnt offering rising from Israel's altars, little though the worshippers knew it, spoke to God of him who would say, Lo, I come, replacing the sacrifices of the law, to do thy will. O God, Hebrews chapter 10 verse 7. The privilege of the true worshippers in this, the Spirit's day, is to penetrate to the real meaning of these burnt offerings, leave them behind as God has left them behind, and commune with him in worship about the reality. The true burnt offering. The meal offering was never offered alone because without shedding of blood is no remission, but it speaks of the sweet savor rising to God, from every thought, word, and deed in the earthly life of Jesus. The fine, pure, even textured flour, burnt on the altar with all the frankincense, reminds us that the perfections of Jesus were his delight and the remembrance of this before him is one of the spiritual sacrifices. The peace offering represents that same unique sacrifice considered as the basis on which we can be reconciled to God, and, at peace with him, share the food of his table. The grades of each sacrifice, a bullock, a lamb, or even a bird, are of great interest to all who look for help to be active worshippers. The offerer's wealth determined what grade he could bring. While each grade was equally acceptable to God, the worshipper's diligence in private in acquiring wealth provided the substance of what he could bring to the door of the tabernacle as an offering to God. For the Christian worshipper, it is not earthly wealth which is in question, but the wealth in spiritual things acquired by diligence in secret. In Christ are hid all the treasures of wisdom, knowledge and love, and it is growth in grace and in the knowledge of him which enriches our capacity for bringing to God whatever delights him. A picture of this is found in Psalm chapter 45 verse 1. My heart is inditing a good matter, I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. The things we make. 
in secret prayer and meditation on Christ form the spiritual substance suitable to be brought as a spiritual sacrifice to God. To some readers, this view of the teaching of scripture on worship will be so complete a novelty as to be difficult to grasp. To share in such worship is, however, an experience which has come to be for thousands of Christians in many lands, the very heart of Christian faith and practice. The reason for the strangeness with which these thoughts will appear to many, is the totally different understanding of the meaning of worship which prevails. To many true believers the word worship describes the totality of the parts of public services, including prayers, hymns, scripture reading, and sermon as conducted by the president. There is, moreover, a great revival of interest in liturgy, or set forms of prayer for public worship. This is largely connected with the ecumenical movement, and indeed the liturgical tendency is spreading far outside the traditionally ritualistic communions. Little attention need be given beyond noticing it here, for the very simple reason that its supports are admittedly outside the New Testament. Few would claim anything in the New Testament itself, independent of tradition, to support liturgical practices, although many believe, on flimsy evidence, that parts of the New Testament actually are rudimentary liturgies. This point is illustrated by a quotation from T.S. Garrett of the Church of South India. One reason why the accounts of the Lord's Supper which we have in the Synoptic Gospels and 1 Corinthians chapter 11 tell us so. Little detail about this event is that they have already been given a liturgical form before their inclusion in these written books. The language is liturgical in character, clearly quoting a traditional narrative already used in the worship of the Church. There is much to be said for the view that parts of the New Testament were composed for liturgical reading. How can we know that these are liturgical passages? Here is the answer. All this is interpreting details in the New Testament in the light of what we know of Eucharistic worship in the 2nd and 3rd centuries, but if these conjectures are correct, there is in the New Testament at an earlier stage of its development that same dynamic combination of liturgical order and charismatic freedom which seems to have been characteristic of the fluid Eucharistic rites of the pre-Nicene Church. See note. To see certain passages as liturgical is thus conjectural, based on tradition. Note, Christian Worship, T.S. Garrett, 1961. Pages 35 to 37. End of note. Many a true believer, in repeating by road from the Missal or the Book of Common Prayer, O Lamb of God that tackest away the sins of the world, will be in heart and spirit offering up a spiritual sacrifice. And, pray God, these pages may help some to do so. Nevertheless such a person is rather in the position of a person driving a car with all the brakes applied, since all around is designed to encourage an Old Testament worship and he has to go clean against the stream in offering worship in spirit and in truth. A fixed liturgy removes altogether the rich variety of that free utterance of what each has made, touching the king. What has been gained in its place is a form of lovely words of venerable and dignified antiquity. The appeal of these is not denied, but must be resisted strong in faith, if we are not to sell obedience to the authority of the word of God for human tradition. When we come to consider the subject of hymns and worship, out of the store of hymns specially written for such worship, perhaps the best examples can be given of presenting the fragrance of Christ as the substance of worship. One such may well bring this present chapter to a close. Blessed God and Father, in thy sight we bow and own thy grace, we worship in the glorious light, which shines in Jesus's face. The glories of his work we bring, thee glorified we see, his deep perfections gladly sing, and tell them forth to thee. He fills thy presence, fully known to thee alone his worth, but in our hearts thy light has shone, as sons of heavenly birth. Lord Jesus Christ, we praise thy name in God the Father's ear, and worship thee, thou holy Lamb, whose blood has brought us near.